Uh, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Julia's ready. Uh, good to have you here. Uh, welcome. Um, if I haven't met you before, uh, my name is James, and uh, I am married to Sarah. Uh, she just came off a night shift this morning. We're back into that world of shift work, uh, and so... Uh, uh, she's at home, sleeping, hopefully, um, and Maddie, I think, is in kids' group, because Hattie brought her down. What a legend. Jake has put his thumb up. She is there. Great. Um, uh, and uh, I'm going to be speaking uh, and continuing our series called City Vision, uh, where we're looking at what it means to be the church here in Bristol uh, and the surrounding areas. And uh, we want to look at both the opportunities and the challenges of what it is to be a church in a city like Bristol. And so uh, you might be new amongst us, and so I just want to encourage you that these Sunday teachings and then the midweek DNA gatherings, that's going to give you a pretty good flavor of who we are, what we are like as a church, what we believe in. Uh, and so I would just encourage you to come uh, along uh, on Thursday as well. Uh, and so Andy kicked off this series two weeks ago, and he, and he spoke from Jeremiah 29, uh, which is uh, a passage of Scripture spoken to a people in exile, uh, and uh, to encourage them, God was encouraging them to, uh, to build families and to bless the, the communities that they lived in, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And so that as now as God's people here, we are also called to that. And so that's where we started in the first week. And then Ash continued uh, last Sunday by taking us through just what I thought was a brilliant sweep through the Bible of cities in the Bible and the people of God gathering, starting from the Garden of Eden right the way through to the Revelation, uh, to the book of Revelation, where uh, God's people are going to gather and bring glory to Jesus and to delight in him. Uh, and so if you missed that message, I would encourage you to, to check it out on our YouTube channel. Uh, that was last week. And one of the things that Ash touched upon in his message was that as the church, we don't just sit idly waiting for Jesus' return. We don't just sit idly and wait for this amazing picture that we see in Revelation just to emerge and appear, but that actually we are called to pray that God's kingdom would come now that we would see uh, and experience the kingdom of God in our lifetime, that we're called to pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as the church, we are called uh, to pray and to seek that uh, in our city. And so uh, this morning, I want to bring us an encouragement, but also something of a prophetic challenge by looking at some of the history of Bristol. And so you might be uh, new to the city. You may have lived here for many years. Uh, you've come to a city that, has, uh, that is known for so many different things. And so what I want to do this morning is to just look at um, a, a few things in the history of Bristol that uh, should stir us to continue to pray and to live for Jesus in this city. That if we really are called to help Bristol believe, and not just believe in a moral ethic or a set of good ideas, but to believe in Jesus, 
then we need to learn some of the lessons of history, but also be inspired by the people that have lived here and to know that, that God is working through his church in history and now and into the future. And so we're going to look at that uh, this morning. And so like I said, the city of Bristol has had an extraordinary and troubling history in equal measure. Uh, so you may have moved to Bristol and you may be familiar with the fact that it's, there's areas of huge prosperity and it's a center of education and creativity and arts and film and music, culture, engineering, technology, coffee. It's known for co- good coffee. And, uh, and it's a city that prides itself on speaking out. It's It's independent. Isn't it? It's got that independent flavor, not afraid to speak out against things. Which is interesting because you only have to go back a couple of hundred years ago and Bristol was Britain's premier slave port in the 17th and 18th century. The horrors of the transatlantic slave trade, Bristol was a key player in it. It was the second city of of Britain at the time. And it's estimated that at least half a million enslaved African people were traded by Bristol merchants. That's a conservative estimate. That's the current population of Bristol today. And then from the profits of the slave trade, we find some of Bristol's amazing architecture, but built on the money that was made by those merchants. So you have Queen Square uh, in the center of town. You may have walked through that, not knowing that the buildings were built off the profits of the slave trade. Areas of Redland and Clifton, and even around here, this church, built on the profits of the slave trade. You might be familiar with names like Edward Colston or Thomas Tyndall who were directly involved. And, of course, the the story continues, doesn't it, even just a couple of years ago, with the statue of Edward Colston being thrown into the harbour. You know, like many cities, Bristol is a place of great prosperity and advancement, and at the very same time, a place of huge evil and suffering trauma. That's what cities are like. They have them in equal measure. You can go somewhere and you can think, this place is amazing. The likelihood is, is that underneath there are horrors that you can't see. And Bristol is no different. And there's still so much to be done. And the church has a role in playing And being part of that, of issues around racial injustice, inequality, division, exploitation, poverty. The story isn't over. And and it's into the darkness of those years, if you look back a couple of hundred years, where there were men and women, beacons of light and hope that began to speak out against some of these things. So there were groups like the Quakers... And the Methodists, led by John and Charles Wesley, who, who wrote and campaigned against the slave trade. There were writers like Hannah Moore, who was a well-known writer 
in Britain who, who went on to establish some schools, in fact, in, in Bristol. There's Hannamore Primary School in the center of town. She was born in fish ponds. Evangelical writer and abolitionist spoke out against and wrote against the slave trade. And she, in fact, was, you know, she was a close friend with William Wilberforce. She had influence. She spoke out. And Bristol has always had people who, in the face of injustice, evil and darkness, Bristol's always had people who would speak out and stand for truth. And many of those people, in fact, all those people that I've talked about were followers of Jesus. In fact, many of them spoke out against the institution of the church who were often complicit in some of these terrible things. One such man uh, was uh, George Muller. And uh, Muller was from Germany uh, and moved to Britain in his 20s on the strong recommendation of his parents. Now, if you read into the life of George Muller, he was a rascal. Uh, so uh, he, would, he was a thief. Uh, ben was saying he read a story about he would stay in hotels and not pay the bill, and he would just move around, never had a fixed address, a rascal. It's no wonder his parents kind of ushered him away. Uh, but at the age of 20 in Germany, a friend invited him uh, to a Bible study, and that Bible study led to his conversion. And so uh, when he became a Christian, this is his, one of his reflections of what happened. He said this, he said, the love of money was gone. The love of place was gone, the love of position was gone, and the love of worldly pleasures and engagements was gone. God alone became my portion. I found my all in him. I wanted nothing else, and by the grace of God, this has remained and has made me a happy man, an exceedingly happy man, and it led me to care only about the things of God. And so, on his conversion, he moved to London, uh, and he wanted to become a missionary, and sadly became really ill and had to move out of the city. And so he ended up in a seaside town called Tynmouth in Devon. You're like, how? What? How did that happen? Well, he was there, and uh, as he began to recover, he started to make some connections in the town and started to be invited to speak at some local churches in Tynmouth. And ended up being a pastor in Timothy, he took on a church in Timothy for just a few years. And then a friend of his heard what he was doing and invited him to Bristol to help lead a church called Bethesda Chapel. And he pastored this church for 66 years. <laughs> it, it, that worried me. <laughs> uh, 66 years. And uh, he, he, he preached tens of thousands of sermons he supported overseas missionaries. He was a huge inspiration to Hudson Taylor, uh, if you know Hudson Taylor. And uh, he set up Bible education programs across the city of Bristol and most famously established homes, which in his own words existed to board, clothe, and spiritually educate destitute children who have lost both parents by death. And so... Uh, without any fundraising, no letters through the door, without anything, without any fundraising, it's estimated that Muller and his team raised something like 86 million pounds in today's money, and they prayed every penny in. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. They received this amount of money, and that money went to building some of the Muller, Muller's orphanage homes up in Ashley Down. They had 
houses elsewhere. In fact, this morning, I was speaking to someone at Bradley Stoke who lived in one of the Muller houses in the 1970s, not, not, not 150 years ago. Uh, but Muller, the organization, Muller's organization continued, and someone in the 1970s grew up in one of Muller's homes. Extraordinary. And so in... And, 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 uh, it says that the records show that about 10,000 children were looked after in those homes. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? And in many respects, Muller's life was remarkable. Well-known stories of the cupboards being empty for breakfast and the kids come down for breakfast and there's nothing. And Muller knows there's nothing. And they say their prayers, thanking God for their food. And then the knock on the door comes and the baker has brought the bread. You might have heard that story before. Extraordinary, extraordinary things happening. And yet it was also a life marked with huge suffering. It's just tragic, some of the things that happened to him. So he married a, a woman called Mary Grove when he was 25. And uh, they had four kids. Three of them died before the age of one. Uh, they were married for 39 years, uh, and then Mary died. And then Muller remarried to a woman called Susanna, and they were married for 23 years before she died. And Muller's only surviving daughter, Lydia, she lived till she was 57, and then she died. George Muller outlived his whole family. He preached at both his wives' funerals. And it's what he said in the face of this loss that gives us the key to his life. Uh, it's going to be an emotional one, isn't it? It's always, it, it always is with me, to be honest. But on the day his first wife, Mary, died, it was on a Sunday in February 1870, Muller recalled this. He said, I fell on my knees and thanked God for her release. She'd fallen really ill. And for having taken her to himself and asked the Lord to help and support us. Later, he said, the last portion of scripture, which I read to my wife, was the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. That was Psalm 84. And Muller says this, now... If we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace, and to all such, he will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to the latter, apart no good thing will be withheld from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ. And all this springs, as I often said before, and here's the key, from taking God at his word and believing what he says. The key to Muller's life was taking God at his word and believing it. Yeah, he'd read the book. He read it apparently 200 times. But more than that, he knew God. He knew the truth that God says what he does, and he does what he says. He knew that intimately. 
In fact, Muller was at, it was at great pains to stress to, to people who would ask him, how are you doing these things? He said, there's nothing special about me. I don't have this special gift of faith that you read about in 1 Corinthians. I don't have that. I just take God at his word. I believe what he has said. For Muller, the power was in God and what he had said, which led him to the extraordinary things, but also to carry him through the trials. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the word of God. He said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, you can learn and be convinced of the truth through the Holy Scriptures. You can be convinced of it. You can know it in your heart. In fact, it says that the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. That that was Muller's testimony. He went to a Bible study And he became a Christian. They're not supposed to be dull. (laughs) The book is full of life. And it transformed him. That when we open the scriptures, the life of Jesus comes to us. It was Muller's testimony. And as I've been thinking about Muller's life and his absolute commitment to taking God at his words, it inevitably led me to reflect on, you know, how, how much do I prioritize God's word and the scriptures in my own life? But also, it led me to think about us as a church. Do we prioritize the scriptures? What does it mean for a church to be committed and take God at his word? And, and it's striking, isn't it, that in a city like Bristol, with its troubled past, that there were men and women who became like pillars of truth in this city, who had absolute confidence in the word of God, that they weren't distracted or put off by the cultural pressures of the time. They weren't apathetic or they didn't shrink back because of what was going on, but they remained strong in what God has said and called them to. So you have people like Muller and Hannah Moore and the Wesleys and George Whitfield and so many others who spent time in this city. And they didn't become activists because they just wanted something to do or because of there was some kind of bad side of humanity that they wanted to deal with. Or because they were just... These kids just need somewhere to live, and so that just seemed like a nice thing to do. These people knew what they were up against, and they knew that they were fighting for the truth of God's word in this city. That's what they were doing. It's like they're waging war with the power of God's word. So, So slavery wasn't just a side issue, but it was in direct conflict with the gospel, That there were people being enslaved and yet Jesus came to bring reconciliation and peace between them and God and with themselves. That it was a gospel issue. 
that Muller, when he came to the city of Bristol and saw kids in poverty, he didn't just think, well, someone better do something. No, no, he'd read the scriptures where Jesus had said, let the little children come to me. That they need to be taught the Bible, the truth of God's word. And so he did something about it. Muller took God at his word when many others in this city had rejected God's word. And it should remind us of, well, I suppose the Garden of Eden, right at the beginning of the Bible, in which God had said to Adam and Eve, this garden is yours. In the message translation, it says, you can have the run of the place. It's yours. You can cultivate it. You can enjoy it. It's all yours. You have ultimate freedom, and yet there is a tree that I don't want you to eat from. And what happens? Well, the serpent comes and speaks to Eve, and what does the serpent say? Did God really say? That there was an attack on the words and the truth of what God had established. And so we know the story. That Adam and Eve chose not to take God at his word, but to reject the word of God. The Bible is very clear. You either take God at his word or you reject it. There's not really any in between. You take God at his word and you trust it, or the alternative is is that you have rejected it. And that is what happened, and sin entered the human heart. And we read through the scriptures about how the people of God over and over and over again did not take God at his word and rejected it, and they fell even deeper into their sin and their rebellion. And then we fast forward into the New Testament, and the Lord Jesus faced the same tempter. He was 40 days in the wilderness and Satan comes and what does he say to Jesus? If you are the son of man, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus' response was this, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see the contrast? In the early chapters of Genesis, Adam and Eve have rejected God's word, not taking God at his word, and yet then we have the perfect son of God, Jesus, who obeyed it, who quoted scripture back, who would receive the, God of word, uh, the word of God and obeyed it. Rejection on the one hand, perfect obedience on the other. And Jesus, the, the incredible thing about Jesus is he didn't just obey the word, he fulfilled the word. So you know there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the coming Messiah and Jesus fulfilled every single one. And it's not like Jesus had a clipboard and was like ticking the prophecy. Some of them were about his birth, where he was going to be born. He had no control over that. He fulfilled the law and the Old Testament prophecies. He, he obeyed the word of God. He fulfilled the word of God. And 
Crucially, he embodied the word of God. What does John write at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1? He says, the word of God became flesh. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. John goes on to write, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We should be amazed, and our minds should be blown by the reality that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. I I don't even understand how that works. But the God who spoke creation into being became a man, took on human flesh, and entered the creation that had rejected him over and over and over again. And so God entered into humanity and took on human flesh and lived among us in perfect obedience to his Father, fulfilling every prophecy and embodying God. The living word would enter into the darkness of our world and bring life-transforming, truth-proclaiming, justice-bringing reconciliation in a way that no one else has ever done and no one else will ever do. Because it is only in God where that kind of power exists. And it was in Jesus and his mighty word that Muller put his trust and faith in. It was in this Jesus who died on the cross and defeated death forever and said, it is finished. Those words proclaimed that sin would have no power over humanity. It was in that Jesus that Muller would put his trust in. And so in a sense, we have in Bristol monuments, buildings, monuments, pillars, don't we? We talk about things like that. Monuments of where God's word has been rejected and where God's word has been received and followed. Monuments of the slave trade all around us. And it, and it should serve as a warning to us of what happens when you reject God's word. It should be a stark warning to us that when we don't take God at his word, this is what happens. And it's not a thing of the past. There is still injustice. There is still poverty and hostility and division and exploitation. These things are just outside our doors. In fact, there are people in our community who are facing some of that right now. And it's what happens when we reject God's word. Those monuments should serve as a warning to us. And then we have monuments like the Ashley Down orphanages. I mean, tragically, they've been turned into like 
flats and really nice apartments, which you just think, that, that's all sorts of wrong there, isn't it? But it serves as a monument to us of what happens when people take God at his word. We don't know whether Muller had always planned for that to happen. I can't imagine someone in their 20s would necessarily think that would happen. But that is what happened. He took God at his word, day in, day out, reading it, praying over it, meditating, and God led him to do some of those things. But he would say, I just took God at his word. And the impact that he had in Bristol was extraordinary. On on the day of his funeral, he, he died in 1892, and tens of thousands of Bristolians came out. It was almost like a bank holiday, like shops were closed. Yeah, there you go. It's incredible, isn't it? There was a a funeral service where a thousand children were in attendance. And he's now buried in Arnos Vale Cemetery in the south of Bristol. And on his gravestone are these words, George Muller, he trusted in God with whom nothing shall be impossible. And in his beloved son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who said, I go on to my father And whatever ye shall seek, ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And in his inspired word, which declares that all things are possible to him that believeth. And it says this, And God fulfilled these declarations in the experience of his servant by enabling him to provide and care for about 10,000 orphans. Someone, he's not even from Bristol. (laughs) Quite a number of us aren't even from Bristol. And yet, God broke his heart for this city. God led him here. He took God at his word. And this is the impact. It's unlikely that any of us are going to have the impact that George Muller has in the way that he did. But God calls us to take him at his word. In the everyday, to take him at his word. And I want to finish by saying two things. A question and then an encouragement to us as a church. You might be here this morning and, And just as you've been thinking about taking God at his word, you know that perhaps you've never made that decision. You've you've never had the opportunity or made the decision to take God at his word seriously. You might not be a Christian here this morning and you have an opportunity. There's no rituals you have to go through. You can ask the Lord Jesus to come and give you faith, forgiveness of sins. You can take God at his word today. I'd love to speak to you at the end, if that's you. I figured that that's probably what happened with George Muller. His friend thought, he's a rascal. He's not want to come to a Bible study, and then look what happened. Or perhaps you are a follower of Jesus. But there are areas in your life where you're finding it difficult to take him at his word. Finding it difficult to trust him. Finding it difficult to really believe the promises that he says over you and your life. I suspect we're all in that 
category. There are things where we don't understand why things happen. And it's moments like this where we can come and we can ask the Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to me so that I would take you at your word? We're going to have an opportunity to respond and to pray. The second thing is, is that as a church, we are also called to be a community built on truth. That just like the monuments of Ashley Down orphanages, the church is called to be a monument of truth. I mean, there is so much nonsense going on, isn't there? This, I don't even need to go there. You know, there's just so much nonsense being talked about in our culture. People desperate to understand and know truth, and we have it. And it means that we are going to talk about things and believe in things that the world don't just think is bonkers, but is offensive. But it says that the scriptures are God breathed. And that they're useful for all sorts of things and that we can build our lives on it because in them it contains truth, absolute truth. It reveals Jesus to us and to a watching world who desperately need truth in their lives. And so on Thursday I am going to talk a bit more about what it means to be a community of truth. What does the word of God in the context of the church look like? But it means that in our devotionals, in our connect groups, when we're just spending time with friends, what does Paul write in Colossians? He says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. It's not supposed to be an afterthought. That we're to season all our conversations with the truth of God's word. That if we're to have an impact in the city then we need to be bold and to believe and to trust in this powerful word that comes from God. Let's stand. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I think because, because on Thursday we're going to talk about the word of God in, in the context of the church, we're going to have an opportunity on Thursday to pray for our church, that we would continue to be built on truth. Uh, but I, I know that there are people here who are going through all sorts of things in their lives, and it is normal and it is human to question, what is going on here, Lord? Why has this happened? Why am I continuing to, to struggle in these things. And we need the truth of God's word to come and speak to us. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing and I'll hand over to Ben and Julia who can lead us from here. But Lord, we want to take your word seriously. Lord, we want to recognize that there are people across the world who don't have the Bible and yet we have it and though we want to be people that submit ourselves under the authority of your word we want to submit ourselves under the authority of you Jesus 
whom absolute truth and perfection can be found. And Lord, we want to be inspired by people like Muller and Hannah Moore and the Wesleys and the Whitfields. But Lord, we also would ask that would you continue to work in us individually and as a church, that we would be pillars of truth wherever we are, whether that's in our home. Lord, would you transform our homes into places of truth? Lord, would our kids not just be occupied on a Sunday, but would they be receiving truth that would set them up for years to come? Lord, we pray, Lord, in our communities, would our homes be known as places of truth to our neighbors who don't know you, Jesus? who are asking the questions, who don't understand the answers. Lord, I pray would they come to our doors and would we go to them? Lord Jesus, would our schools, Lord, have strong Christians who teach the truth? Lord, we pray for our workplaces. Lord, I pray for every person who finds themselves in an office that is utterly against the truth of God. And I pray would you strengthen them in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to bring wisdom and revelation to us that we might hold out the word of life to Bristol in Jesus' name. Amen.